Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 35, 12th Century Life and Knight's Tale. I thought it might be time to take a break from the affairs of the kingdom, step back and ask what life would have been like in 12th century England. I plan to do a bit on each of the three traditional components of medieval society. These are the people who fought, the people who prayed and the people who worked. There is one obvious admission from all of this, which is the merchants, who really don't fit comfortably into the medieval world view, but we'll come to that later. So what I thought I'd do is start off today with the first estate, the warrior class, the nobility. And I thought one good way to do this would be to talk about the life of William the Marshal. William is the first secular non-royal person to have a contemporary life written about him. He is one of the most famous knights of his age, described by a contemporary as the perfect knight. His is the story of a man who rose from being a penniless knight to the regent of England, a medieval rags to riches tale. Before I do that, I also thought I'd like to tell you about the books I've used and found good throughout this whole process. And if you wish, you can go and see those books with a few thoughts from me on the website historyofengland.typepad.com with a link to Amazon to buy them. Since I've got some catching up to do, I'll recommend three books. From the period of anarchy that we've just finished, there were two. So if you want a straightforward history which takes a pretty sympathetic view of Stephen, go for Jim Bradbury's book, Stephen and Matilda. But if you want something more in-depth and peppered with quotes from the period, go for Edmund King's book, King Stephen. For today's episode, I'm going to recommend a book I've drawn on a lot, David Crouch's excellent book, William the Marshal. It's one of those relatively rare books that manages to combine rigorous history with a really good read. You'll love it. One more thing before I get on with it. You might like to know that I not only have a website, but I also have a Facebook site. So if that's your favoured method of communication, do go and find it. I think you have to go and search for the history of England. Or failing that, you have to search for David Crowther. As you can tell, my level of technological enablement with Facebook is pretty limited. But anyway, there are other people there. And as ever, I'd love to have your comments wherever you want to post them. OK, sitting, ironing or commuting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Let me start with a few thoughts about the medieval character. And the first point is that, hate it or loathe it, it's a violent society, or at least where the possibility of violence is never far away. People take retinues of armed men with them when they travel. Chronicles are full of tales of violence. It's a cruel world where you can be castrated by the king for not doing your job properly, when in fact it was probably the king's fault. Where young men wear swords, get drunk, and the inevitable happens. Where husbands are legally allowed to beat their wives, and where it is generally accepted that beating children is the only way to teach them a good lesson and bring them up properly. I'm not saying that medieval men and women were necessarily any less compassionate or anything like that, 
but there is an acceptance of violence and cruelty as part of the natural order of things. It's reflected in the entertainment and jokes that people like hunting, bear baiting, practical jokes, slapstick. In a dangerous and small world, personal relationships are central, and loyalty is a key component. Society is structured around these personal relationships. It also means that your personal reputation is absolutely paramount. Lose it and you're knackered. I suspect this has never changed, of course, but in medieval times, people would go a long way to protect that reputation. And conversely, there's a very high value put on a man's word. Think of Goodwin. Accused of treachery by Edward the Confessor, he is absolved by two things, his oath and the oaths of other men that he was a good egg, really. This is not changed by 1200 one bit, though in Henry II's changes to justice, we can see the beginning of the end. Justice displays another aspect of the medieval mind, faith, belief and superstition. Almost everyone believes in God. There are plenty of people who don't like the clergy, but atheists are almost unheard of. And that's not surprising, is it? Without science, how else to explain all the weird stuff that goes on in the world? Chronicles are stuffed with miraculous happenings and the God and the devil are daily companions who intervene in daily lives. A couple of notes also about the English aristocracy generally before we get to William. The aristocracy in this period included no more than 20 earls, 200 barons and about 5,000 knights. I guess it's stating the obvious to say that being a knight was more than a financial thing. I mean, actually, there is a financial definition. A knightly income was defined in 1181 at an income of more than 16 marks, or about 10 quid. There were clearly knights who had less than 10 marks, though, and there were clearly free peasants who had more. Aristocracy was a matter of family and blood, and it was pretty much impossible to escape your birth status, whether as an aristocrat or a peasant. One more point. We think of feudal knights as giving military service by being available for the feudal army when it's called up. But there were lots of other types of knight, described generally under the term sergeant. They owned different kinds of service. It could be things like keeping the lord's falcons, or their hounds, or serving as a lawman, or many other things. These people who were around the place working for the lord provided a body of readily available muscle for trips here and there or whenever they were needed. So, on to William the Marshal. He was born around 1147 to a man we've already met, John Fitzgilbert, or John Marshall. William would die in 1219, and his life therefore usefully spans our 12th century period. His family and his background is rooted in the early 12th century, and his life takes us to the end of the Angevins. He was born because his father needed to make a deal with Patrick of Salisbury, a local and unfortunately more powerful local rival. In itself, this is the stuff of aristocratic life. Their reason for existence was to build the power and influence of their family. They are mini-kings. They have almost exactly the same motivations and approaches as their royal overlords. They're happy to use violence if it suits their purpose. They will build castles to protect their position. They build alliances and partnerships with other families and use marriage as a vital tool. Their reputation depends on both the land they hold but also their affinity, the men who follow them and ally themselves with them. Sir John married Patrick's sister, and in 1147, William was the result. We know very little about William's childhood, and actually know relatively little about childhood in general for the age. There is the odd image that comes down to us, such as, for example, the brothers of Gerald of Wales building sandcastles on the beach. Boys and girls were prepared very early for their different paths. 
aristocratic girls would soon be put to sewing and embroidery, and boys training for the hunt and for war. And you know these people who turn up on the news every so often, the ones who talk about bringing back caning, all the stocks to instil a bit of discipline in the young? Well, these guys are definitely driving the bus in the 12th century. But we first see our hero at the age of four. He's lying in the sling of a catapult in front of his father's castle. He'd been given by his father to King Stephen as a hostage for good behaviour, a very common practice. But John then decided to rebel, so Stephen's in front of the gates, forcefully making the point to John, threatening that unless he opens those gates, his son is toast, or jam. John refused, calmly noting he still had the kit to make more sons. Nice. And Stephen didn't have the heart to do the deed. Instead, the young marshal, by force of circumstances, joined the king's court for a while. He was left to recall how he badgered King Stephen to play with him, and that the king agreed to play a game called Knights with him, which does sound like the Stephen we know. Now William was a younger son, and the Normans were very strict about not dividing the family lands. This meant that William would have to make his own way in the world. Within his lights, his father would try to do his best for him, so when William was old enough, that is probably about 13 or 14, he arranged for William to be sent to the household of a man called William of Tankerville, who was a powerful man in Normandy. He was the Chamberlain. Brown-haired, tall and apparently handsome, William rode off to Normandy in the company of a companion and a serving man to be a squire. William would have learnt there the things that every aristocrat had to know. The most important of these was the hunt. Hunting, apart from killing people, was what the aristocracy did. A 12th century saying has it that if you couldn't learn to ride by the age of 12, you were fit only to be a priest. The world of hunting, horse, hound and hawk, was almost exclusively aristocratic, and there were actually rules that restricted what animals non-nobles could hunt. This attitude, of course, was radically different to that of Roman times, where wild animals were seen as free for all. Already, of course, by this time, there are different kinds of hounds for different purposes. Trackers, boarhounds, harehounds, setters. And the same applied very much to birds of prey. Hawks were traded from all over Europe, and they could be incredibly expensive. There's a story about the Ottoman Sultan, who took 12 white gerfalcons instead of a ransom of 200,000 gold ducats. There was a hierarchy of the types of hawk and their relative level of coolness. So, for example, the gerfalcon was on top of the perch, the bird of kings. A peregrine falcon was still very cool, it was for princes. But a yeoman would have to make do with a goshawk or a hobby. I could go on, but the point is, hunting was big for the aristocracy, and there was a complete organisation set up around it. As far as we can tell, William didn't get much of an education. He probably spoke both English and French, but we know that he couldn't read. Actually, that's not necessarily the norm by this time for the lay aristocracy, but it is for William. But of course, the main thing William would have learnt to do is to fight. And at this, he was to prove himself the master. The next stage of William's life started with his knighting, which probably happened when he was 20, in 1167, which is pretty typical. Knighting was the big ceremony that marked the coming of manhood for the young aristocrat, and it was based on an ancient Germanic tradition of girding a young man with arms and striking him with a fist. It had disappeared in England, but was reintroduced by the Normans after 1066. We get lots of detail in later centuries about what goes on, but in the 12th century actually we don't know as much as you might think. But we do know that at the heart of it were two things, 
the girding of the new knight with a sword belt, and the dubbing, a ritual blow on the shoulder. Because knighting was such a big moment, it could be made a very grand occasion. So, for example, William of Tankerville's own knighting had been a very grand occasion at the court of King Stephen, which lasted a full week and involved all kind of festivities and gifts. Unfortunately, William the Marshal didn't have those kind of funds or kudos, so his ceremony was at the other end of the scale. His father had died the year before, and William's brother John had acquired all their family estates, so it was clearer than ever that William was on his own. But he did his best to mark the occasion by wearing a new cloak, and then had a sword girded to his side and received the ritual blow on the shoulder. It's possible there were other ceremonies, so other knights might have had a vigil for the night before the ceremony, or a nice warm cleansing bath. But these could simply belong to elaboration added by later centuries. So William has achieved knighthood, and now he needed to find himself a career. He and others like him really didn't have many options. If he wanted to maintain himself as a credible knight, he needed to have enough cash to provide himself with certain basic things. He needed arms and armour, sword, mail, hauberk, male leggings, sword, male hauberk, male leggings, helmet, gauntlets and the like. But also, the normal knight would have at least three horses. A big, heavy war horse, like the modern shire horse, a palfrey, as his runaround horse, and a pack horse, for all his stuff. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so his first option was to go home and throw himself on the hospitality and mercy of his brother. He'd hang around, helping out, hoping something would come up. Hearthsons, they called them. Or alternatively, he could try to join a lord's meni. Meni is the term for a lord's household, and he could try to join one as a household knight. The lord's household was very much the same as the king's household in miniature, with two broad parts to it the clerical side, or the chancery, who do all the clever written stuff, and the physical lay side, with all the fighting, hunting, and all that sort of thing. As we saw under Henry I, the royal household had grown and become much more organised, and the same was absolutely true of the rest of the nobility. As a household knight, William would get his kit paid for, get his board and his lodgings. Like other knights of the household, he would wear his lord's device. The complicated rules and symbols around heraldry that nowadays we associate with the medieval knight and the nobility are just starting around this time. Of course, the idea of a lord or a king having a symbol is absolutely nothing new. Think of Harold Godwinson and his dragon banner. And carrying the lord's banner was an honour and a mark of favour, so much so that such knights became called knight's banneret to distinguish them. So in the 12th century we begin to see the emergence of a complicated set of rules to govern these symbols and the symbols became much more widely used, on shields, or seals, or surcoats. One of the reasons for this may quite simply be the change in armour design, with helmets now covering the whole face. It might also be the growth of tournaments, and the pageant that surrounded them, and the need to know who was on your side in the melee, or who you were supporting if you were in the crowd, a kind of medieval football strip. 
So by the end of the 12th century, most knights had themselves heraldic arms, and a technical vocabulary was emerging. So, the Royal Arms of England, for example, are adopted by Richard the Lionheart in 1194. And it's described as Gouls, three lions passant gardant, which means three golden lions on a red background, facing outward with their right leg raised. It's probably unsurprising that the lion was far and away the most popular symbol, followed by the eagle. History doesn't record a lot of demand as a symbol for the weasel, dormouse, rabbit or indeed goat. So there he was. William was a big, aggressive, charming and ambitious bloke. Slinking around in his brother's house was not for him, and he'd be pretty well designed to be a household knight. And indeed, he'd been involved early in a fight on behalf of William Tankerville against a rival lord, and had acquitted himself very well, though rather unprofitably. But sadly, his career suffered an early setback, when Tankerville let him know that if he decided that he'd rather find employment elsewhere, that would be fine by Tankerville. Apparently, the language of management remains the same down the centuries. This essentially meant, sling your hook, Marshall, you're fired. So the career looked a little bit shaky for William. So he did what anybody would do, and he worked his contacts. We do know that he's in dire straits. He even has to sell that cloak that he'd bought for his knighting. But his contacts came through, in this case his uncle Patrick the Earl of Salisbury. And in 1168, he found himself in his uncle's menis, accompanying him in Poitou in France with that most celebrated of medieval queens, Eleanor of Aquitaine. William found himself in trouble, though, pretty quickly. Patrick and Eleanor were ambushed by the Lusignor brothers. The queen was hustled off to safety at a nearby castle, while the old Patrick and William tried to buy her time. The old Patrick was killed, and William was left fighting desperately, holding off a circle of knights with his back against the hedge. Eventually, a perfidious Frenchman snuck round the back and stabbed his thigh through the hedge and brought him down, and William was captured. This, of course, was the point of medieval warfare, a way of making some cash. It's the same thing as we discussed about the Battle of Tanchebrai. The main aim wasn't to kill your opponent, that would be an awful waste. The aim was to capture him and get him to purchase his freedom. The absolute apogee of this, of course, will be Richard the Lionheart and his 100,000 mark ransom. The consequences of capture for a poor knight, though, were pretty grim. They were likely to be disposed of, and William was a poor knight. William's captors didn't even bother to allow him to dress his wound. But in another sense, trouble was exactly what a poor household knight needed, some way of making himself stand out and earn the favour of a powerful patron. And to William's fortune, this is exactly what happened here. Eleanor saw his bravery, and in gratitude, she paid his ransom and gave him a job in her household. Now this was big news. Getting employment as a household knight was one thing, but working for royalty, that was the big one. And they didn't come much bigger than Eleanor of Aquitaine. William was to be a household knight until he was about 43, and you get the impression that he was completely at home here. This was his gig. William's not necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer, though he's no fool, and he certainly knew how to work his lord's court, how to be charming, how to create a group of supporters, and how to present himself as the perfect knight and the 12th century saw the development of the idea of a code of knightly conduct. The basic standards were still based on a martial and sport-loving society. The attitude of the noble was shot through with contempt for the peasantry and the bourgeoisie, and had a good dose of anti-clericalism at times. It's quite clear that an overbearing manner and contempt for social inferiors are the way you'd expect a lord to be. But the idea of courtesy, or manners of the court, are becoming much more sharply defined. One of the possible components of this code was the idea of courtly love. 
Courtly love is a 19th century tag and its use is hotly debated by people who get hot about these kinds of things. The idea began to be made popular by the troubadours, a new kind of poet who sang of a new kind of love, a long and arduous courtship of a superior lady by the inferior male of illicit and unrequited passion. The earliest of the known troubadours is a truly remarkable character, Duke William IX of Aquitaine, who lived from 1076 to 1126. And in the later 12th century, the number of troubadours whose work survives explodes. But despite the appearance of courtly love, the profile of your perfect knight remained a pretty masculine thing. The fashionable knightly values are therefore blood and family, military skill, learning, loyalty, and all of these enhanced by that essential quality, generosity. The first two, of course, are by no means new, but the importance of learning is quite important. Literacy is still relatively slow to spread, but is now seen as a desirable attribute for the nobility. And great men are now praised when they're patrons of learning. So Robert of Gloucester, Geoffrey of Anjou and particularly Robert Beaumont are good examples of this. The literature which probably most closely reflected the aristocratic ideal were the Arthurian legends. Legends of Arthur weren't new, but they were made really popular by a man called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who produced a work called The History of the Kings of Britain in the 1130s. Now, I can really recommend this to you. It was a bestseller at the time. If Waterstones had been around, it would have been stacked high in the windows, and it's still a rollicking good read. Anyway, this work refashioned and relaunched the figure of Arthur as the great conqueror who subdued the British Isles and established a court that was the model of knightly behaviour and ceremony. So, to quote from the work as an example. In those days, Britain held such a place of honour that it surpassed all other kingdoms in wealth, luxurious adornments and the courtliness of its inhabitants. Any of its knights who obtained a reputation for courage wore clothes and arms of one colour. Fashionable women who wore clothes matching them would disdain to have as a lover anyone who had not proved themselves three times in battle. In this way they were made more chaste and the knights became more courageous for the love of them. Arthur became a craze. A French version was produced by Scheimar in 1140, which spread the story further. The Norman poet Wace created the idea of the round table in his 1155 romance, and a German version also gets produced. Everyone was talking about the stories, whether they were true or not, and knights and lords tried really hard to live up to the Arthurian ideal. The super summary of all this is that through the period, to be an aristocrat was still based very firmly on blood, wealth, military power, fame as ever, but it is beginning to be a bit more sophisticated, a bit more elaborate and a bit more ceremonious than before. OK, so William's got his foot on the first rung of the ladder of promotion as a household knight. Still finding it a bit hard to find the money to buy the right kit, though. He stayed with Eleanor until 1170, and then she moved him into the household of her son, Henry, the heir to Henry II's throne. The Angevin royalty, i.e. Henry II and his family, were a notoriously dysfunctional family and spent their lives arguing and fighting. Every single one of them could have been issued with a permanent hasbo, and if Relate had been around family counselling at the time, they'd have set up a permanent office for Henry, his wife and children. We'll get into all of that when we get back to the political history, but the eldest son, Henry, who became known as the Young King, was no different, though less well known now than his brothers Richard and John. So if we think about it, here we have a young man with bags of cash, a household stuffed full of other young men armed to the teeth and looking for something to do, and a social code based on demonstrating courage and military skill. So what did we think was going to happen? And in 1173, it duly did, when the young king revolted against his father and William joined him. That'll be one of the features of William Marshall. 
it's very difficult to blame him for joining in a revolt against Henry II, because in his mind, all he was being was loyal to his immediate master. Unfortunately for William and Henry, the revolt was crushed in 1176, but William became a close confidant of the young king, and clearly one of his very closest knights. But our hero was still finding it very difficult to make ends meet. But fortunately, something came along that saved his bacon, and that something was the tournament. The tournament was introduced much more slowly into England than elsewhere, largely because Henry II thought they were a rubbish idea that always ended in trouble and he wouldn't have them on his lands, thank you very much. But Henry the Young King's court was not in England. He was in Anjou and Aquitaine, so well able to take part in the tournaments of France. The period 1175-1182 to see a high point in the early medieval tournament, and these were the making of William Marshall. At the base of the medieval tournament was the idea of military games, and our first documented reference to them comes from 1114. The tournament brought a whole load of things together. It was a way of training knights in the heat of a pretty real battle. It was also a way for young, penniless household knights to make some cash, because the same rules applied as in warfare. If you beat your opponent, you didn't kill him, but you took him hostage in return for a payment. And finally, of course, it was a magnificent social occasion, where the relevant lord could display their culture and magnificence. There was a famous tournament at Lagny in France in 1179 where Louis VII celebrated the coronation of his son, which 3,000 knights came to. Later centuries would add a whole load of complicated rules and stuff, but in the early days the tournament was essentially simulated war. The organiser would select a good location and set up a temporary settlement some distance away from a village or town. The area between the town and the tournament settlement would become the field of play as it were. So all the knights would arrive in companies and by mid-morning would all be lined up in horseback, formally in two sides, but practically in their own companies. Behind them would be the lists, where their squires would keep three extra lances for each knight. And also there'd be a roped-off safe area called the reset, protected by a line of armed knights. And if one side panicked and surrendered, they could run back to the line and hide behind their armed men. Obviously this was not the ideal outcome for any knight and cowering behind some armed mercenary wasn't going to win you the favours of any of the ladies present but it was there if you needed it. A knight might also keep a kipper about them. This sounds like an odd, smelly and slightly antisocial thing to do until you know that your kipper had nothing to do with smoking a herring but was indeed a footman. His job was to follow the knight round and pick up discarded items of arms or armour from fallen opponents. It might be in some cases that the fallen opponent wasn't completely fallen and was keen to hold on to his kit, in which case the kipper should take the appropriate action, likely to involve some kind of violence. In later days, tournaments became much more ceremonial and formulaic, and kippers unfortunately began to be frowned on. So when everything was ready, a bugle was sound, and the two sides would charge at each other. This was called the melee, and it could go on all day. Some lords might cheat. Philip the Count of Flanders developed a really useful little strategy of turning up late in the day, joining the melee when everyone was exhausted, and then he and his company would zoom round, hoovering up all the tired knights and coming away with massive ransoms, which you've got to say seems to put the profit motive ahead of chivalry. We tend to think of jousting as being what tournaments were all about, but actually this isn't the case, or not in these days anyway. They were a component, and later on they'd become much more important, but in the 12th century... It's the melee that was the main thing. Jousts were allowed, so the younger knights, for example, would be given the chance to joust as an aperitif before the main event, to give them a chance to win something before the more experienced knights made mincemeat of them later. 
but jousting became a lot more popular and they began to have their own events and by the 14th century tournaments have declined in popularity and jousting has taken over. Now William Marshall was the king of the tournament and his popularity with the young king owed a lot to his prowess there. In a very real sense William's fortune was built on the tournament. First off it allowed him to build up his initial set of kit and make him stand out as a household knight. Secondly, it brought him the favour of an influential man, i.e. Henry, and brought him to the attention of the king himself, and thence onward to office and lands. William effectively became the young king's team manager. He'd organise the tactics and teams and lead the group into battle. So, for example, he copied the Count of Flanders' tactics, not by turning up late, but by holding back from the first shock charge before leading the young king's team into action. He and the young king worked as a team in the thick of action. William relates one of their favourite tactics of riding together each side of an opponent, grabbing the reins from both sides and pulling him helplessly behind them. He also relates a time when they did this to a chap called Simon de Neufle, but forgot to take care of where they were going. Unfortunately, on their way, the victim hit his head in a beam, and when they arrived at the lists, they had nothing behind them but a horse. William was also personally successful, and for him this was a business. He recounts having captured over 500 men in his tournament career. In the late 1170s, he teamed up with a Flemish acquaintance called Roger de Gorgi, and he milked the circuit. The young king's kitchen clerk, Ouijan, agreed to keep the score and manage the account, and in ten months, the martial score amounted to 103 knights. I have this rather lovely image of William and his friends sitting around the hearth at the end of the day, talking about the day's tournament and totting out their winnings. In this way, William solved all his money problems and made a name for himself. There's a superb film, by the way, that while being a bit fanciful, does get the whole feel of the later jousting events across rather nicely. So if you've got a spare evening, nip out and get a knight's tale with Heath Ledger and Paul Bettany. You'll really enjoy it. So it's looking good for our hero. He's the apple of his boss's eye, his boss is a top man, he's making cash by hitting other blokes over the head, and he's getting plenty of exercise. Next week, though, William's career will teeter on the edge of disaster, when jealous courtiers try to poison the boss's mind against him. Find out what happens, tune in next week, and thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.